0: Chapter thirty one part two of Rural Rides. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee, Rural Rides by William Cobbett. Chapter thirty one part two. Boston, Sunday, eleventh April, eighteen thirty. Last night I made a speech at the Playhouse to an audience whose appearance was sufficient to fill me with pride. I had given notice that I should perform on Friday, overlooking the circumstance that it was Good Friday. In apologizing for this inadvertence, I took occasion to observe that, even if I had persevered, the clergy of the Church could have nothing to object, seeing that they were now silent while a bill was passing in Parliament, to put Jews on a level with Christians, to enable Jews, the blasphemous of the Redeemer, to sit on the bench, to sit in both Houses of Parliament, to sit in council with the king, and to be kings of England, if entitled to the crown, which by possibility they might become if this bill were to pass, that to this bill the clergy had offered no opposition, and that therefore how could they hold sacred the anniversary appointed to commemorate the crucifixion of Christ by the hands of the blaspheming and bloody Jews? That at any rate if this bill passed, if those who called Jesus Christ an impostor, were thus declared to be as good as those who adored him, there was not, I hoped, a man in the kingdom who would pretend, that it would be just to compel the people to pay tithes and fees and offerings to men for teaching christianity this was a clincher and as such it was received this morning i went out at six looked at the town walked three miles on the road to spilsby and back to breakfast at nine boston boss is latin for ox though not above a fourth or fifth part of the size of its daughter in new england which got its name i dare say from some persecuted native of this place who had quitted england and all her wealth and all her glories to preserve that freedom which was still more dear to him, though not a town like New Boston, and though little to what it formerly was, when agricultural produce was the great staple of the kingdom, and the great subject of foreign exchange, is nevertheless a very fine town, good houses, good shops, pretty gardens about it, a fine open place, nearly equal to that of Nottingham, in the middle of it a river, and a canal passing through it, each crossed by a handsome and substantial bridge a fine market for sheep, cattle, and pigs, and another for meat, butter, and fish, and being like Lynn a great place for the export of corn and flour, and having many fine mills, it is altogether a town of very considerable importance, and, which is not to be overlooked, inhabited by people, none of whom appear to be in misery. The great pride and glory of the Bostonians is their church, which is, I think, four hundred feet long, ninety feet wide, and has a tower, or steeple as they call it, three hundred feet high which is both a landmark and a sea-mark. To describe the richness, the magnificence, the symmetry, the exquisite beauty of this pile is wholly out of my power. It is impossible to look at it without feeling, first, admiration and reverence and gratitude to the memory of our fathers who reared it, and next, indignation at those who affect to believe, and contempt for those who do believe, that when this pile was reared the age was dark, the people rude and ignorant, and the country destitute of wealth and thinly peopled. Look at this church, then. Look at the heaps of white rubbish that the parsons have lately stuck up under the new church act, and which after having been built with money forced from the nation by odious taxes, they have stuffed full of locked-up pens called pews, which they let for money, as cattle and sheep and pig-pens are let at fairs and markets. Nay, after having looked at this work of the dark ages, look at that great, heaving, ugly, unmeaning mass of stone called St. Paul's, which an American friend of mine, who came to London from Falmouth and had seen the cathedrals at Exeter and Salisbury swore to me, that when he first saw it he was at a loss to guess whether it were a courthouse or a jail. After looking at Boston Church, go and look at that great gloomy lump, created by a Protestant Parliament, and by taxes wrung by force from the whole nation, and then say which is the age really meriting the epithet dark. St. Botolph, to whom this church is dedicated, while he, if saints see and hear what is passing on earth, must lament that the piety-inspiring Mass has been in this noble edifice, supplanted by the monotonous hummings of an oaken hutch, has not the mortification to see his church treated in a manner as if the new possessors sighed for the hour of its destruction? It is taken great care of, and though it has cruelly suffered from Protestant repairs, though the images are gone and the stained glass, and though the glazing is now in squares instead of lozenges, though the nave is stuffed with pens called pews, and though other changes have taken place detracting from the beauty of the edifice, great care is taken of it, as it now is, and the inside is not disfigured and disgraced by a gallery, that great and characteristic mark of Protestant taste, which as nearly as may be makes a church like a playhouse. St. Botolph, on the supposition before mentioned, has the satisfaction to see that the base of his celebrated church is surrounded by an iron fence, to keep from it all offensive and corroding matter, which is so disgusting to the sight round the magnificent piles at Norwich, Ely, and other places, that the churchyard and all appertaining to it, are kept in the neatest and most respectable state, that no money has been spared for these purposes, that here the eye tells the heart that gratitude towards the fathers of the Bostonians is not extinguished in the breasts of their sons, and this the saint will know that he owes to the circumstances, that the parish is a poor vicarage, and that the care of his church is in the hands of the industrious people, and not in those of a fat and luxurious dean and chapter wallowing in wealth derived from the people's labour. Horncastle, 12th April a fine soft showery morning saw us out of boston carrying with us the most pleasing reflections as to our reception and treatment there by numerous persons none of whom we had ever seen before the face of the country for about half the way the soil the grass the endless sheep the thickly scattered and magnificent churches continue as on the other side of boston but after that we got out of the low and level land at sibsey a pretty village five miles from boston we saw for the first time since we left peterborough land rising above the level of the horizon. And not having seen such a thing for so long, it had struck my daughters, who overtook me on the road, I having walked on from Boston, that the sight had an effect like that produced by the first sight of land, after a voyage across the Atlantic. We now soon got into a country of hedges and dry land and gravel and clay and stones, the land not bad, however, pretty much like that of Sussex, lying between the forest part and the south downs. A good proportion of woodland also, and just before we got to Horncastle, we passed the park of that Mr. Dimmock, who is called the Champion of England, and to whom it is said hereabouts, that we pay out of the taxes eight thousand pounds a year. This never can be, to be sure, but if we pay him only a hundred a year, I will lay down my glove against that of the Champion, that we do not pay him even that for five years longer. It is curious, that the moment you get out of the rich land, the churches become smaller, mean, and with scarcely anything in the way of tower or steeple this town is seated in the middle of a large valley not however remarkable for anything of peculiar value or beauty a purely agricultural town well built and not mean in any part of it it is a great rendezvous for horses and cattle and sheep dealers and for those who sell these and accordingly it suffers severely from the loss of the small paper money horn castle thirteenth april morning i made a speech last evening to from a hundred and thirty to a hundred and fifty almost all farmers and most men of apparent wealth to a certain extent. I have seldom been better pleased with my audience. It is not the clapping and huzzaing that I value, so much as the silent attention, the earnest look at me from all eyes at once, and then when the point is concluded the look and nod at each other, as if the parties were saying, Think of that! And of these I had a great deal at Horncastle. They say that there are a hundred parish churches within six miles of this town. I dare say that there was one farmer from almost every one of those parishes. This is sowing the seeds of truth in a very sure manner. It is not scattering broadcast, it is really drilling the country. There is one deficiency, and that with me a great one, throughout this country of corn and grass and oxen and sheep, that I have come over during the last three weeks, namely the want of singing birds. We are now just in that season when they sing most. Here, in all this country, I have seen and heard only about four skylarks, and not one other singing bird of any description, and of the small birds that do not sing. "'I have seen only one yellowhammer,' and it was perched on the rail of a pound between Boston and Sibsey. "'Oh, the thousands of linnets all singing together on one tree in the sandhills of Surrey! "'Oh, the carolling in the coppices and the dingles of Hampshire and Sussex and Kent! "'At this moment, five o'clock in the morning, the groves at Barn Elm are echoing with the warblings of thousands upon thousands of birds. "'The thrush begins a little before it is light. "'Next the blackbird, next the larks begin to rise.' all the rest begin the moment the sun gives the signal and from the hedges the bushes from the middle and the topmost twigs of the trees comes the singing of endless variety from the long dead grass comes the sound of the sweet and soft voice of the white throat or nettle tom while the loud and merry song of the lark the songster himself out of sight seems to descend from the skies milton in his description of paradise has not omitted the song of earliest birds however everything taken together here in lincolnshire are more good things than man could have had the conscience to ask of God. And now, if I had time and room to describe the state of men's affairs in the country through which I have passed, I should show that the people at Westminster would have known how to turn paradise itself into hell. I must, however, defer this until my next, when I shall have been at Hull in Lincoln, and have had a view of the whole of this rich and fine country. In the meanwhile, however, I cannot help congratulating that sensible fellow, Wilmot Horton, and his co-operator, Burdett. That emigration is going on at a swimming rate. Thousands are going, and that too without mortgaging the poor-rates. But, sensible fellows, it is not the aged, the halt, the ailing. It is not the paupers that are going, but men with two hundred pounds to two thousand pounds in their pocket. This very year, from two to five millions of pounds sterling will actually be carried from England to the United States. The Scotch who have money to pay their passages go to New York. Those who have none get carried to Canada, that they may thence get into the United States. I will inquire one of these days what right Burdett has to live in England, more than those whom he proposes to send away. Spittle, near Lincoln, 19th April, 1830. Here we are at the end of a pretty decent trip since we left Boston. The next place on our way to Hull was Horncastle, where I preached politics in the playhouse to a most respectable body of farmers, who had come in the wet to meet me. Mr. John Penniston, who had invited me to stop there, behaved in a very obliging manner and made all things very pleasant. The country from Boston continued, as I said before, flat for about half the way to Horncastle, and we then began to see the high land. From Horncastle I set off two hours before the carriage, and going through a very pretty village called Ashby, got to another at the foot of a hill which they say forms part of the wolds that is, a ridge of hills. This second village is called Scamblesby. The vale in which it lies is very fine land, a hazel mould rich and light too i saw a man here ploughing for barley after turnips with one horse the horse did not seem to work hard and the man was singing i need not say that he was young and i dare say he had the good sense to keep his legs under another man's table and to stretch his body on another man's bed this is a very fine corn country chalk at bottom stony near the surface in some places here and there a chalk pit in the hills the shape of the ground somewhat like that of the broadest valleys in wiltshire but the fields not without fences as they are there fields from fifteen to forty acres, the hills not downs, as in Wiltshire, but cultivated all over, the houses white and thatched, as they are in all chalk countries. The valley at Scamblesby has a little rivulet running down it, just as in all the chalk countries. The land continues nearly the same to Louth, which lies in a deep dell, with beautiful pastures on the surrounding hills, like those that I once admired at Shaftesbury in Dorsetshire, and like that near St. Hostel in Cornwall, which I described in 1808 at louth the wise corporation had refused to let us have the playhouse, but my friends had prepared a very good place and i had an opportunity of addressing crowded audiences two nights running at no place have i been better pleased than at louth mr patterson solicitor a young gentleman whom i had the honour to know slightly before and to know whom whether i estimate by character or by talent would be an honour to any man was particularly attentive to us mr knoll ironmonger who had had the battle to fight for me for twenty years expressed his exultation at my triumph, in a manner that showed that he justly participated it with me. I breakfasted at Mr. Norse's with a gentleman eighty-eight or eighty-nine years of age, whose joy at shaking me by the hand was excessive. "'Ah!' said he, "'where are now those savages who at Hull threatened to kill me for raising my voice against this system? This is a very fine town, and has a beautiful church, nearly equal to that at Boston.' We left Louth on the morning of Thursday the 15th, and got to Barton on the Humber by about noon over a very fine country large fields fine pastures flocks of those great sheep of from two hundred to a thousand in a flock and here at barton we arrived at the northern point of this noble county having never seen one single acre of waste land and not one acre that would be called bad land in the south of england the walls or highlands lie away to our right from horn castle to near barton and on the other side of the walls lie the marshes of lincolnshire which extend along the coast from boston to the mouth of the humber on the bank of which we were at Barton, Hull being on the opposite side of the river, which is here about five miles wide, and which we had to cross in a steamboat. But let me not forget great Grimsby, at which we changed horses, and breakfasted, in our way from Louth to Barton. What the devil, the reader will say, should you want to recollect that place for? Why do you want not to forget that sink of corruption? What could you find there to be snatched from everlasting oblivion, except for the purpose of being execrated?' I did, however, find something there worthy of being made known, not only to every man in England, but to every man in the world, and not to mention it here would be to be guilty of the greatest injustice. To my surprise I found a good many people assembled at the inn-door, evidently expecting my arrival. While breakfast was preparing I wished to speak to the bookseller of the place, if there were one, and to give him a list of my books and writings, that he might place it in his shop. When he came I was surprised to find that he had it already, and that he occasionally sold my books upon my asking him how he got it he said that it was brought down from london and given to him by a mr plaskett who he said had all my writings and who he said he was sure would be very glad to see me but that he lived above a mile from the town a messenger however had gone off to carry the news and mr plaskett arrived before we had done breakfast bringing with him a son and a daughter and from the lips of this gentleman a man of as kind and benevolent appearance and manners as i ever beheld in my life i had the following facts namely That one of his sons sailed for new york some years ago that the ship was cast away on the shores of long island that the captain crew and passengers all perished that the wrecked vessel was taken possession of by people on the coast that his son had a watch in his trunk or chest a purse with fourteen shillings in it and diverse articles of wearing apparel that the americans who searched the wreck sent all these articles safely to england to him and said he i keep the purse and the money at home and here is the watch in my pocket it would have been worth the expense of coming from London to Grimsby, if for nothing but to learn this fact, which I record, not only in justice to the free people of America, and particularly in justice to my late neighbours in Long Island, but in justice to the character of mankind. I publish it as something to counterbalance the conduct of the atrocious monsters who plunder the wrecks on the coast of Cornwall, and, as I am told, on the coasts here in the east of the island. Away go then all the accusations upon the character of the Yankees. People may call them sharp, cunning, over-reaching, and when they have exhausted the vocabulary of their abuse, and the answer is found in this one fact, stated by Mr. Joshua Plaskett, of Great Grimsby, in Lincolnshire, Old England. The person who sent the things to Mr. Plaskett was named Jones. It did not occur to me to ask his Christian name, nor to inquire what was the particular place where he lived in Long Island. I request Mr. Plasket to contrive to let me know these particulars, as I should like to communicate them to friends that I have on the north side of that island. However, it would excite no surprise there, that one of their countrymen had acted this part, for every man of them, having the same opportunity, would do the same. Their forefathers carried to New England the nature and character of the people of old England, before national debts, paper money, septennial bills, standing armies, dead weights and jubilees, had beggared and corrupted the people. At Hull, I lectured, I laugh at the word, to about seven hundred persons on the same evening that I arrived from Louth, which was on Thursday the 15th. We had what they call the summer theatre, which was crowded in every part except on the stage, and the next evening the stage was crowded too. The third evening was merely accidental, no previous notice having been given of it. On the Saturday I went in the middle of the day to Beverley, saw there the beautiful Minster, and some of the fine horses, which they show there at this season of the year, dined with about fifty farmers, made a speech to them, and about a hundred more perhaps, and got back to Hull time enough to go to the theatre there. The country round Hull appears to exceed even that of Lincolnshire. The three mornings that I was at Hull I walked out in three different directions, and found the country everywhere fine. To the east lies the Holderness country. I used to wonder that Yorkshire, to which I, from some false impression in my youth, had always attached the idea of sterility, should send us of the south those beautiful cattle, with short horns and straight and deep bodies. You have only to see the country to cease to wonder at this. It lies on the north side of the mouth of the Humber, is as flat and fat as the land between holbeach and boston without as they tell me the necessity of such numerous ditches the appellation yorkshire bite the acute saying ascribed to yorkshiremen and their quick manner i remember in the army when speaking of what country a man was one used to say in defence of the party york but honest another saying was that it was a bare common that a yorkshireman would go over without taking a bite every one knows the story of the gentleman who upon finding that a boot cleaner in the south was a yorkshireman and expressing his surprise that he was not become master of the inn, received for answer, "'Ah, sir, but master is York, too.' And that of the Yorkshire boy who, seeing a gentleman eating some eggs, asked the cook to give him a little salt, and upon being asked what he could want with salt, he said, "'Perhaps that gentleman may give me an egg presently.' It is surprising what effect sayings like these produce upon the mind. From one end to the other of the kingdom, Yorkshiremen are looked upon as being keener than other people, more eager in pursuit of their own interests, more sharp and more selfish.' for my part i was cured with regard to the people long before i saw yorkshire in the army where we see men of all counties i always found yorkshiremen distinguished for their frank manners and generous disposition in the united states my kind and generous friends of pennsylvania were the children and descendants of yorkshire parents and in truth i long ago made up my mind that this hardness and sharpness ascribed to yorkshiremen arose from the sort of envy excited by that quickness that activity that buoyancy of spirits which bears them up through adverse circumstances and their consequent success in all the situations of life they like the people of lancashire are just the very reverse of being cunning and selfish be they farmers or be they what they may you get at the bottom of their hearts in a minute everything they think soon gets to the tongue and out it comes head and tails as fast as they can pour it fine materials for oliver to work on if he had been sent to the west instead of the north he would have found people there on whom he would have exercised his powers in vain you are not to have every valuable quality in the same man and the same people, you are not to have prudent caution united with quickness and volubility. But though, as to the character of the people, I, having known so many hundreds of Yorkshire men, was perfectly enlightened, and had quite got the better of all prejudices many years ago, I still, in spite of the matchless horses and matchless cattle, had a general impression that Yorkshire was a sterile county, compared with the counties in the south and the west, And this notion was confirmed in some measure by my seeing the moory and rocky parts in the West Riding last winter. It was necessary for me to come and see the country on the banks of the Humber. I have seen the vale of Huniton in Devonshire, that of Taunton and Glastonbury in Somersetshire. I have seen the vales of Gloucester and Worcester, and the banks of the Severn and the Avon. I have seen the vale of Berkshire, that of Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire. I have seen the beautiful vales of Wiltshire, and the banks of the Medway from Tunbridge to Maidstone, called the Garden of Eden. I was born at one end of Arthur Young's finest ten miles in England. I have ridden my horse across the Thames at its two sources, and I have been along every inch of its banks from its sources to Gravesend, whence I have sailed out of it into the Channel, and having seen and had ability to judge of the goodness of the land in all these places, I declare that I have never seen any to be compared with the land on the banks of the Humber, from the Holderness country included, and with the exception of the land from wisbeach to Holbeach, and Holbeach to Boston. Really, the single parish of Holbeach, or a patch of the same size in the Holderness country, seems to be equal in value to the whole of the county of Surrey, if we leave out the little plot of Hop garden at Farnham. Nor is the town of Hull itself to be overlooked. It is a little city of London. Street, shops, everything like it, clean as the best parts of London, and the people as bustling and attentive. The town of Hull is surrounded with commodious docks for shipping. These docks are separated in three or four places by drawbridges, so that as you walk round the town, you walk by the side of the docks and the ships. The town on the outside of the docks is pretty considerable, and the walks from it into the country beautiful. I went about a good deal, and I nowhere saw marks of beggary or filth, even in the outskirts, none of those nasty, shabby, thief-looking sheds that you see in the approaches to London, none of those off of pernicious and insolent luxury. I hate commercial towns in general. There is generally something so loathsome in the look, and so stern and unfeeling in the manners of seafaring people that i have always from my very youth disliked seaports but really the sight of this nice town the manners of its people the civil and kind and cordial reception that i met with and the clean streets and especially the pretty gardens in every direction as you walk into the country has made hull though a seaport a place that i shall always look back to with delight Beverley, which was formerly a very considerable city with three or four gates one of which is yet standing had a great college built in the year 700 by the archbishop of york it had three famous hospitals and two friaries there is one church a very fine one and the minster still left of which a bookseller in the town was so good as to give me copperplate representations it is still a very pretty town the market large the land all round the country good and it is particularly famous for horses those for speed being shown off here on the market days at this time of the year the farmers and gentlemen assemble in a very wide street on the outside of the western gate of the town, and at a certain time of the day the grooms come from their different stables to show off their beautiful horses, blood-horses, coach-horses, hunters, and cart-horses, sometimes they tell me forty or fifty in number. The day that I was there, being late in the season, there were only seven or eight, or ten at the most. When I was asked at the inn to go and see the horses, I had no curiosity, thinking it was such a parcel of horses as we see at a market in the south, but I found it a sight worth going to see for besides the beauty of the horses there were the adroitness the agility and the boldness of the grooms each running alongside of his horse with the latter trotting at the rate of ten or twelve miles an hour and then swinging him round and showing him off to the best advantage in short i was exceedingly gratified by the trip to Beverley. the day was fair and mild we went by one road and came back by another and i very seldom passed a pleasanter day in my life i found very much to my surprise that at hull i was very nearly as far north as at leeds and at Beverley a little further north. Of all things in the world, I wanted to speak to Mr. Foster of the Leeds Patriot, but was not aware of the relative situation till it was too late to write to him. Boats go up the Humber and the Ouse to within a few miles of Leeds. The Holderness Country is that piece of land which lies between Hull and the Sea. It appears to be a perfect flat, and is said to be, and I dare say is, one of the very finest spots in the whole kingdom. I had a very kind invitation to go into it, but I could not stay longer on that side of the Humber, without neglecting some duty or other. In quitting Hull I left behind me but one thing, the sight of which had not pleased me, namely a fine gilded equestrian statue of the Dutch deliverer, who gave to England the national debt, that fruitful mother of mischief and misery. Until this statue be replaced by that of Andrew Marvel, that real honour of this town, England will never be what it ought to be. We came back to Barton by the steamboat on Sunday in the afternoon of the 18th, and in the evening reached this place, which is an inn, with three or four houses near it, at the distance of ten miles from Lincoln, to which we are going on Wednesday the 21st. Between this place and Barton we pass through a delightfully pretty town called Brigg. The land in this, which is called the high part of Lincolnshire, has generally stone, a solid bed of stone, of great depth, at different distances from the surface. In some parts this stone is of a yellowish colour, and in the form of very thick slate, and in these parts the soil is not so good, but generally speaking the land is excellent, easily tilled no surface water the fields very large not many trees but what they are particularly the ash very fine and of free growth and innumerable flocks of those big long wool sheep from one hundred to a thousand in a flock each having from eight to ten pounds of wool upon its body one of the finest sights in the world is one of these thirty or forty acre fields with four or five or six hundred ewes each with her one or two lambs skipping about upon grass the most beautiful that can be conceived and on lands as level as a bowling-green. I do not recollect having seen a molehill or an ant-hill since I came into the country, and not one acre of waste-land, though I have gone the whole length of the country one way, and am now got nearly half-way back another way. Having seen this country, and having had a glimpse at the holderness country, which lies on the banks of the sea, and to the east and north-east of Hull, can I cease to wonder that those devils the Danes found their way hither so often, though the fat sheep then, just as they are now, depend upon it, and these numbers of noble churches and these magnificent minsters were reared because the wealth of the country remained in the country, and was not carried away to the south, to keep swarms of devouring tax-eaters, to cram the moors of wasteful idlers, and to be transferred to the grasp of luxurious and blaspheming Jews. You always perceive that the churches are large and fine and lofty, in proportion to the richness of the soil and the extent of the parish. In many places where there are now but a very few houses, and those comparatively miserable, They are churches that look like cathedrals. It is quite curious to observe the difference in the style of the churches of Suffolk and Norfolk, and those of Lincolnshire and of the other bank of the Humber. In the former two counties the churches are good, large, and with a good plain and pretty lofty tower, and in a few instances, particularly at Ipswich and Long Melford, you find magnificence in these buildings, but in Lincolnshire the magnificence of the churches is surprising. These churches are the indubitable proof of great and solid wealth and formerly of great population from everything that i have heard the netherlands is a country very much resembling lincolnshire and they say that the church at antwerp is like that at boston but my opinion is that lincolnshire alone contains more of these fine buildings than the whole of the continent of europe still however there is the almost total want of the singing birds there had been a shower a little while before we arrived at this place it was about six o'clock in the evening and there is a thick wood together with the orchards and gardens very near to the inn We heard a little twittering from one thrush, but at that very moment, if we had been as near to just such a wood in Surrey, or Hampshire, or Sussex, or Kent, we should have heard ten thousand birds singing all together, and the thrushes continuing their song till twenty minutes after sunset. When I was at Ipswich, the gardens and plantations round that beautiful town began in the morning to ring with the voices of the different birds. The nightingale is, I believe, never heard anywhere on the eastern side of Lincolnshire, though it is sometimes heard in the same latitude in the dells of Yorkshire how ridiculous it is to suppose that these frail birds with their slender wings and proportionately heavy bodies cross the sea and come back again i have not yet heard more than half a dozen skylarks and i have only last year heard ten at a time make the air ring over one of my fields at barn elm this is a great drawback from the pleasure of viewing this fine country it is time for me now withdrawing myself from these objects visible to the eye to speak of the state of the people and of the manner in which their affairs are affected by the workings of the system with regard to the labourers they are everywhere miserable the wages for those who are employed on the land are through all the counties that i have come twelve shillings a week for married men and less for single ones but a large part of them are not even at this season employed on the land the farmers for want of means of profitable employment suffer the men to fall upon the parish and they are employed in digging and breaking stone for the roads so that the roads are nice and smooth for the sheep and cattle to walk on in their way to the all-devouring jaws of the jews and other tax-eaters in london and its vicinity none of the best meat except by mere accident is consumed here to-day the twentieth of april we have seen hundreds upon hundreds of sheep as fat as hogs go by this indoor their toes like those of the foot marks at the entrance of the lions den all pointing towards the wind and the landlord gave us for dinner a little skinny hard leg of an old ewe mutton where the man got it i cannot imagine Thus it is. Every good thing is literally driven or carried away out of the country. In walking out yesterday I saw three poor fellows digging stone for the roads, who told me that they never had anything but bread to eat, and water to wash it down. One of them was a widower with three children, and his pay was eighteen pence a day, that is to say about three pounds of bread a day each, for six days in the week, nothing for Sunday, and nothing for lodging, washing, clothing, candlelight, or fuel. Just such was the state of things in France at the eve of the Revolution. Precisely such and precisely the same were the causes. Whether the effect will be the same, I do not take upon myself positively to determine. Just on the other side of the hedge, while I was talking to these men, I saw about two hundred fat sheep in a rich pasture. I did not tell them what I might have told them, but I explained to them why the farmers were unable to give them a sufficiency of wages. They listened with great attention, and said that they did believe that the farmers were in great distress themselves with regard to the farmers it is said here that the far greater part if sold up would be found to be insolvent the tradesmen in country towns are and must be in but little better state they all tell you they do not sell half so many goods as they used to sell and of course the manufacturers must suffer in the like degree there is a diminution and deterioration every one says in the stocks upon the farms sheep-washing is a sort of business in this country and i heard at boston that the sheep-washers say that there is a gradual falling-off in point of the numbers of sheep washed the farmers are all gradually sinking in point of property the very rich ones do not feel that ruin is absolutely approaching but they are all alarmed and as to the poorer ones they are fast falling into the rank of paupers when i was at ely a gentleman who appeared to be a great farmer told me in presence of fifty farmers at the white hart inn that he had seen that morning three men cracking stones on the road as paupers of the parish at wilbarton and that all these men had been overseers of the poor of that same parish within the last seven years. Wheat keeps up in price to about an average of seven shillings a bushel, which is owing to our two successive bad harvests, but fat beef and pork are at a very low price, and mutton not much better. The beef was selling at Lynn for five shillings a stone of fourteen pounds, and the pork at four and sixpence. The wool, one of the great articles of produce in these countries, selling for less than half of its former price. And here let me stop to observe that I was well informed before I left London, that merchants were exporting our long wool to France, where it paid thirty per cent duty. Well, say the landowners, but we have to thank Huskisson for this at any rate, and that is true enough, for the law was most rigid against the export of wool. But what will the manufacturers say? Thus the collective goes on, smashing one class and then another, and resolved to adhere to the taxes, it knocks away, one after another, the props of the system itself. By every measure that it adopts for the sake of obtaining security, or of affording relief to the people, it does some act of crying injustice. To save itself from the natural effects of its own measures, it knocked down the country bankers, in direct violation of the law in 1822. It is now about to lay its heavy hand on the big brewers and the publicans, in order to pacify the call for a reduction of taxes, and with the hope of preventing such reduction in reality. It is making a trifling attempt to save the West Indians from total ruin, and the West India colonies from revolt but by that same attempt it reflects injury on the British distillers, and on the groves of barley. Thus it cannot do justice without doing injustice, it cannot do good without doing evil, and thus it must continue to do, until it take off in reality, more than one-half of the taxes. One of the great signs of the poverty of people in the middle rank of life is the falling off of the audiences at the playhouses. There is a playhouse in almost every country town, where the players used to act occasionally, and in large towns almost always. In some places they have of late abandoned acting altogether. In others they have acted very frequently, to not more than ten or twelve persons. At Norwich the playhouse had been shut up for a long time. I heard of one manager who has become a porter to a warehouse, and his company dispersed. In most places the insides of the building seem to be tumbling to pieces, and the curtains and scenes that they let down seem to be abandoned to the damp and the cobwebs. My appearance on the board seemed to give new life to the drama. I was until the birth of my third son a constant haunter of the playhouse, in which I took great delight, but when he came into the world I said, Now, Nancy, it is time for us to leave off going to the play. It is really melancholy to look at things now, and to think of things then. I feel great sorrow on account of these poor players, for though they are made the tools of the government and the corporations and the parsons, it is not their fault, and they have uniformly, whenever I have come in contact with them, been very civil to me. I am not sorry that they are left out of the list of vagrants in the new act, but in this case, as in so many others, the men have to be grateful to the women. For who believes that this merciful omission would have taken place if so many of the peers had not contracted matrimonial alliances with players, if so many playeresses had not become peeresses? We may thank God for disposing the hearts of our lawmakers to be guilty of the same sins and foibles as ourselves, for when a lord has been sentenced to the pillory, the use of that ancient mode of punishing offences was abolished. When a lord, Castlereagh, who was also a minister of state, had cut his own throat, the degrading punishment of burial and crossroads was abolished. And now, when so many peers and great men have taken to wife play actresses, which the lord termed vagrants, that term, as applied to the children of Melpomene and Thalia, is abolished. Lord be the gods that our rulers cannot after all divest themselves of flesh and blood for the Lord have mercy upon us if their great souls were once to soar above that tenement. Lord Stanhope cautioned his brother Piers a little while ago against the angry feeling which was rising up in the poor against the rich. His Lordship is a wise and humane man, and this is evident from all his conduct. Nor is this angry feeling confined to the counties in the south, where the rage of the people, from the very nature of the local circumstances, is more formidable woods and coppices and dingles and bylanes, and sticks and stones ever at hand, being resources unknown in counties like this. When I was at St. Ives in Huntingdonshire, an open country, I sat with the farmers and smoked a pipe by way of preparation for evening service, which I performed on a carpenter's bench in a wheelwright's shop, my friends the players never having gained any regular settlement in that grand mart for four-legged fat meat, coming from the fens and bound to the wen. While we were sitting a handbill was handed round the table advertising farming stock for sale, and amongst the implements of husbandry, an excellent fire-engine, several steel-traps, and spring-guns, and that is the life, is it, of an English farmer. I walked on about six miles of the road from holbeach to Boston. I have before observed upon the inexhaustible riches of this land. At the end of about five miles and three-quarters I came to a public-house, and thought I would get some breakfast, but the poor woman with a tribe of children about her had not a morsel of either meat or bread. At a house called an inn a little further on, the landlord had no meat except a little bit of chine of bacon, and though there were a good many houses near the spot, the landlord told me that the people were become so poor that the butchers had left off killing meat in the neighbourhood. Just the state of things that existed in France on the eve of the Revolution. On that very spot I looked round me and counted more than two thousand fat sheep in the pastures. How long, how long, good God, is this state of things to last? How long will these people starve in the midst of plenty? How long will fire-engines, steel traps, and spring guns be, in such a state of things, a protection to property? When I was at Beverley a gentleman told me, it was Mr. Dawson of that place, that some time before a farmer had been sold up by his landlord, and that in a few weeks afterwards the farmhouse was on fire, and that when the servants of the landlord arrived to put it out, they found the handle of the pump taken away, and that the homestead was totally destroyed. This was told me in the presence of several gentlemen, who all spoke of it as a fact of perfect notoriety. Another respect in which our situation so exactly resembles that of France, on the eve of the Revolution, is the fleeing from the country in every direction. When I was in Norfolk there were four hundred persons, generally young men, labourers, carpenters, wheelwrights, millwrights, smiths and bricklayers, most of them with some money, and some farmers and others with good round sums. These people were going to Quebec in timber-ships, and from quebec by land into the united states they had been told that they would not be suffered to land in the united states from on board of ship the roguish villains had deceived them but no matter they will get into the united states and going through canada will do them good for it will teach them to detest everything belonging to it from boston two great barge loads had just gone off by canal to liverpool most of them farmers all carrying some money and some as much as two thousand pounds each from the north and west riding of yorkshire Numerous waggons have gone carrying people to the canals leading to Liverpool, and a gentleman whom I saw at Peterborough told me that he saw some of them, and that the men all appeared to be respectable farmers. At Hull the scene would delight the eyes of the wise Burdette, for here the emigration is going on in the old Roman plan. Ten large ships have gone this spring laden with these fugitives from the fangs of taxation. Some bound direct to the ports of the United States, others, like those at Yarmouth, for Quebec, those that have most money go direct to the united states the single men who are taken for a mere trifle in the canada ships go that way having nothing but their carcasses to carry over the rocks and swamps and through the myriads of placemen and pensioners in that miserable region there are about fifteen more ships going from this one port this spring the ships are fitted up with berths as transports for the carrying of troops i went on board one morning and saw the people putting their things on board and stowing them away seeing a nice young woman with a little baby in her arms i told her that she was going to a country where she would be sure that her children would never want victuals where she might make her own malt soap and candles without being half put to death for it and where the blaspheming jews would not have a mortgage on the life's labour of her children there is at hull one farmer going who is seventy years of age but who takes out five sons and fifteen hundred pounds brave and sensible old man and good and affectionate father he is performing a truly parental and sacred duty and he will die with the blessing of his sons on his head for having rescued them from this scene of slavery, misery, cruelty, and crime. Come then, Wilmot, Horton, with your sensible associates, Burdett and Pullett thompson Come into Lincolnshire, Norfolk, and Yorkshire. Come and bring Parson Malthus along with you. Regale your sight with this delightful stream of emigration. Congratulate the greatest captain of the age, and your brethren of the collective. Congratulate the noblest assembly of free men, on these the happy effects of their measures. Oh no, Wilmot! oh no generous and sensible burdette it is not the aged the infirm the halt the blind and the idiots that go it is the youth the strength the wealth and the spirit that will no longer brook hunger and thirst in order that the moors of tax-eaters and jews may be crammed you want the irish to go and so they will at our expense and all the bad of them to be kept at our expense on the rocks and swamps of nova scotia and canada you have no money to send them away with the tax-eaters want it all and thanks to the improvements of the age, the steamboats will continue to bring them in shoals in pursuit of the aughts of the food that their taskmasters have taken away from them. After evening lecture at Horncastle, a very decent farmer came to me and asked me about America, telling me that he was resolved to go, for that if he stayed much longer he should not have a shilling to go with. I promised to send him a letter from Louth to a friend at New York, who might be useful to him there and give him good advice. I forgot it at Louth, but I will do it before I go to bed from the thames and from the several ports down the channel about two thousand have gone this spring all the flour of the labourers of the east of sussex and west of kent will be culled out and sent off in a short time from glasgow the sensible scotch are pouring out amain those that are poor and cannot pay their passages or can rake together only a trifle are going to a rascally heap of sand and rock and swamp called prince edward's island in the horrible gulf of st lawrence but when the american vessels come over with indian corn and flour and pork and beef and poultry and eggs and butter, and cabbages and green peas and asparagus for the soldier officers and other tax-eaters, that we support upon that lump of worthlessness, for the lump itself bears nothing but potatoes. When these vessels come, which they are continually doing, winter and summer, towards the fall, with apples and pears and melons and cucumbers, and in short everlastingly coming and taking away the amount of taxes raised in England, when these vessels return, the sensible Scotch will go back in them for a dollar a head, till at last not a man of them will be left but the bedridden. Those villainous colonies are held for no earthly purpose, but that of furnishing a pretence of giving money to the relations and dependents of the aristocracy, and they are the nicest channels in the world through which to send English taxes to enrich and strengthen the United States. Withdraw the English taxes, and except in a small part in Canada, the whole of those horrible regions would be left to the bears and the savages in the course of a year. This emigration is a famous blow given to the baromungus. The way to New York is now as well known and as easy, and as little expensive as from old York to London. First the Sussex parishes sent their paupers. They invited over others that were not paupers. They invited over people of some property, then persons of greater property. Now substantial farmers are going. Men of considerable fortune will follow. It is the letters written across the Atlantic that do the business. Men of fortune will soon discover that to secure to their families their fortunes, and to take these out of the grasp of the inexorable tax-gatherer they must get away every one that goes will take twenty after him and thus it will go on there can be no interruption but war and war the thing dares not have as to france or the netherlands or any part of that hell called germany englishmen can never settle there the united states form another england without its unbearable taxes its insolent game laws its intolerable dead weight and its treadmills End of chapter 31